Flip over to James 1.17. And this evening we're looking at the attribute of the immutability of God. And this is the verse that comes to my mind when I think about the immutability of God. And let's look at this just briefly, and then I kind of want to walk through this doctrine a little bit. Uh, I am, I just keep a file on this, this attribute of God, because uh, it is probably, at least over the last century, has been the attribute of God that has been most attacked. Uh, even in evangelicalism, and we could take it a step farther, even in reformed evangelicalism. Uh, there has uh, been the attacks of open theism uh, back in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s uh, when I was in uh, seminary. Uh, there was uh, process theism before that. There has been over the last just really three or four years, there has been a correction that's been happening in our own reformed circles where major theologians in our circles have just been wrong on this attribute of God, uh, about the, the mutability of God, and have articulated in very unhelpful ways. And so there's been a, a correction just over the past few years about this. So I keep a file about this doctrine and uh, this attribute of God, and so I'm not quite sure what are my thoughts, what are Bob Vinks, what are Charnocks, what are Dolziels. Uh, in my file, I grab different things. Uh, all the good things are theirs, and then there's a few of things that are off base that are mine. But we're going to put them all together tonight as we try and think about this together. But James 1.17, James says this. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. It's a verse I think about more than any other. And I think about God being immutable. And what James is doing here is he's talking about God being the father of lights. And what he's doing, he's going back to Genesis 1.1. And in Genesis 1.1, you have nothing. You just have God. Right? There's nothing. Just God. And then everything comes from him. And so he establishes the lights. He establishes the sun and the sky. And he establishes the sun and day and the, the moon by night. And what James is pointing out, these things that feel so fixed to us, the sun by day and the moon by night, he's saying they have shadows. They disappear. These things that feel so fixed, they disappear. And he's saying God is the father of lights. And he is one who has no shadow. He's fixed. He's immovable. He's unchanging, even more so than the sun and the moon, which feel like two of the most fixed things in our world. God is the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation. There is no shadow due to change. And so in the context here, what James is doing is he's encouraging the church there that they can trust in God. Because God remains who He is, and who He is is good. And James is telling him, look, this Father of lights, every good gift comes from above. This Father of lights, He is one who bestows good gifts. 
upon his children. The sun can be clouded over. The moon cannot come out some night. But God always remains the same. And he always remains good to those who are his. And so in him you can trust above all else. Is what James is telling the people that he's writing to. Think about it. Uh, think about it in two regards. I think about it in Martin Luther in that wonderful hymn. I always think when we're singing it, you know, mighty fortresses are God. And I think about Martin Luther and all the Roman Catholic world at the time was seeking his death because the Pope had put out a decree on his head. And he's pulled up in, in the castle and he's being protected by an earthly prince in his, ca- in his castle. And he pins that hymn, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark. Right? He, he's not relying upon the prince. He's not relying upon the physical castle. He's relying upon God who is unchanging and immovable, who is who he is. That's what he's relying upon. Why can't God change? Nick got at this a little bit last week, the difference between actuality and potentiality, that God is true actuality, that he can't become something. He cannot subject himself to changes because every change involves becoming something that he is lacking. You can't become something without adding or taking away. I was driving with my kids on the way here tonight. I was saying, I'm going to preach on the immutability of God. What's the immutability of God? And we started talking about it. And I said, isn't it interesting? We always want things that change. He said, yeah, I want a hoverboard. One said, and the other said, I want bigger feet. He said, God, and what is that? It's because something is lacking. There's something that we want. Or something that we want to become. But there's no such lacking in God. He's actuality. He's not potentiality. He doesn't need to become something else. There's nothing else he can become. He is who he is, right? In Exodus 3, when he appears in that burning bush before Moses, that's what he says. I am who I am. But I think it's even better. I like to say, I think if we were translated into our vernacular today, we would say he's saying, I be who I be. That is, there's activity there. He just is. He's not becoming something. He just is. Aquinas like to call God pure actuality. That is, that God is simply pure act. He's just pure act. Aquinas is trying to demonstrate with such language that God has no form of passive potency. That is, passive potency, meaning that there is something in need of being activated, or there's something that needs to be fulfilled in Him. Yet nothing needs to be activated in God. I am, I be who I be, God says. He's just pure act itself. He is life. Everything else derives life from him. He is just life. He's just pure action. 
He has absolute life in and of himself. And Job, Job gets at this multiple times in the book of Job. In Job 22, Job says this, verses 2 through 3, he says, Can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? That is, you can't give anything to him. Because you can't add to him. He's actuality. Where he says in Job 35, Job will say there in verses 6 through 7, he says, if you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? You can't take anything from him. And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? You can't take from him. And you can't give to him. Because he can't become greater and he can't become less. God will say this very thing about himself in Job 41, verse 11. It says, who is first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. The reason God can receive nothing from us, Doziel says, is because we have nothing to give him that he does not already possess. When God gives to his creatures, he does not give away. That is, he does not divest himself of being and actuality when he gives good gifts to humans. Consequently, we have nothing to bestow on God that he does not already perfectly and infinitely possess in his fullness of being. We can't add to him. We can't subtract from him. He's just infinite. We can't replenish him. We can't enlarge. He's entirely self-sufficient and independent of everything else. Nothing changes him. He doesn't change. Our third thing, let's be clear what we do not mean. Bavink says this, he says, this does not mean that there is a rigid immobility in God. There is change around about and outside of him, and there is change in people's relations to him, but there is no change in God himself. Though eternal in himself, God can nevertheless enter into time. And though immeasurable in himself, he can fill every cubic inch of space with his presence. Without losing himself, God can give himself, and while absolutely maintain his, maintaining his immutability, he can enter into an infinite number of relations to his creatures. So God can create, but that does not produce a change in God. But rather in the creature. The creature emerges from non-existence to existence. But the change is not in God. The change is not in him. It is from him. Augustine used to illustrate it this way. He said, it's like the sun. The sun does not change, whether it scorches or whether it warms or whether it hurts or whether it animates. The sun remains the same regardless of what it does to that which it shines upon. God remains the same no matter how we're affected. The change is not in God, but in the creation in us and the things around us. 
Many people will say, well, what about God repenting in Scripture? This was especially what open theists were obsessed about in the 80s and 90s. And, and the answer has been throughout the, the ages that this is anthropomorphic language. That is, it's anthropos, man, man-shaped language. That is, when we see God repenting in Scripture, when we see that God changes His mind in Scripture, it's put in terms so that you and I can understand. From our observable viewpoint, it appears as though God has changed His mind. But God has not changed His mind. He has not changed His will. He has a will, a sovereign will that does not change. It cannot change because He does not change. But from our vantage point, it appears as though he changes. And so Hezekiah's death, for example. It's not that the will of God changes, but that he had willed to change. As Turretin said, God can will the change of various things without prejudice to the immutability of his will because even from eternity he has decreed such a change. It's according to his will that he would relent with Hezekiah and give him long life. God knew it. Hezekiah just didn't. What are the problems if God can change? Well, if God could be changed, then he would be indebted or he would be obligated to the agent of change. There would be something that would be over God, something that has some kind of jurisdiction with him, something that can force him, that can cause him, if God changes, it must be either to a greater perfection than he had before or to a less. If it's to the better, then he was not perfect. And so was not God. If it is to the worse, he will not be perfect and so can no longer be God. If God can change, we could rightly say he is not God. Third, there would be no distinction between creator and creature, Bob Inc. points out. The whole creation, the whole difference between God, creator, and creation hinges on the contrast between being and becoming. Creation becomes. The creator is just being. All that is creaturely, Bob Inc. says, is in the process of becoming. It is changeable, constantly striving in search of rest and satisfaction and finds this rest only in Him who is pure being without becoming. The fourth reason is that it would just be absolutely theologically devastating. Because His changing would signify that there is some alteration in His being or His life and thus there could be very little reason for you or I to rely upon Him, to trust Him, to look to Him. There'd be very re little reason to do so. Because He could change, His will could change, a decree could change. What are the blessings that God is immutable, that He does not change? It's one that He's not a respecter of persons. That is a great blessing. That he doesn't save based upon what he thinks man can give to him. Oh, this person would give me more than this person. No, because there's nothing you can add to him. He's not a respecter of persons. 
It's by His sovereign good choice and His sovereign grace that He chooses to save. Two, nothing can control Him. Nothing can dictate Him. Nothing can shape Him. Nothing can force Him. He's sovereign. It says in Malachi 3.6, you think about Israel, all those times that Israel has fallen into sin, time and time again, and Malachi is rehearsing this, and he's, he's chastising the nation for, for turning their back on God and worshiping these false gods and, and not tending to the, order, the, the widows and the orphans. And, and, and then God says this in Malachi 3. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. Because he's made a covenant promise. And so they, though they continue to wander off into sin, and they continue to reject him, and they continue to mock him, and they continue to worship false idols, and they continue to turn their back on him, he says, I'm not forsaking you. Why? Because I can't. I'm a covenant-keeping God who does not change. I've decreed that I will save my covenant people. That I will be faithful to my covenant, and so I shall. And this is one of the greatest blessings to the saints of God. Because we are also sinners. Right, as Luther said, we are at the same time, saint and sinner. If God wasn't immutable, yours and my salvation would constantly be in jeopardy. Because he could say, you know what, Jason, that's enough. I've had enough. Away with you. But he's made a sovereign promise according to His covenant, the covenant blood that was shed by His Son as He died upon the cross. And so it's fixed. There can't be ever a day in all of eternity that all of a sudden God turns and He says, you know what? Enough of you sinners saved by grace in heaven, out. He can't. He won't. Because He's immutable. And so his will and his divine decree is immutable. It doesn't change. He's the same today and yesterday and forever. And so we can be confident that his truth alone will stand. Because he alone is objective. He is worthy of our worship because he's distinctly different. You know, the psalmist often does this. I'll just close with this. Psalm 62, one of my favorite psalms. Steve, I think you prayed it this morning while we were praying. Psalm 62. The psalmist understands this. David understands this. He says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. Yep. Things are swirling around David as they often are. There's chaos, or so it seems. There's pain. He's got all kinds of enemies. He's being assaulted from the out. He's being assaulted from within. He says, He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. 
How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall or tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He's fixed. He doesn't change. He's immovable, like a granite stone. I shall not be shaken. On God, who is immutable, rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. And then there's that word Selah. And as I like to say, that, that is the most divinely appointed Selah in all the scriptures. Because what theologians think is the Selah was just a musical rest. They would sing this psalm and that in some way conveyed that they were just to stop for a second in music. And that's just where you stop. That's just where you rest. God is a rock for us. Trust in Him at all times, O oh people. Pour out your hearts before Him. God is a rock. He's your salvation. He's your mighty fortress. You can hide there. Because there's nothing that can thwart Him. There's nothing that can undo them. There's nothing that can take away from him. There's nothing that can take you away from him. Because he's immutable. He's unchanging. Let's pray together. Our God, we are thankful that you are a God who is immutable and unchanging. That you are fixed and who you are, that your will shall forever remain true. And yet, you are a God who draws very near and close to us. This is not an unfeeling immutability, but rather one that is infused with love, kindness and with grace to your people, with justice and holiness and righteousness that cannot be thwarted. And you are a God whom we want to rely upon, turn to, to build the sands of our life upon, for you truly are a rock. May you be our refuge, may you be our fortress, and may we know it and delight in this truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.